Hello and welcome to Main Mug Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Professor Gadsad, evolutionary psychologist, author of the mega bestseller, The Parasitic Mind, and also a new book, The Sad Truth About Happiness. Uh, we spoke, first of all, about um, mental illness and happiness and sex differences in everything from uh, eating disorders to postpartum depression to suicide uh, to uh, OCD the ways in which men and women uh, manifest distress differently and uh, why sometimes apparently very destructive behavior can have an evolutionary uh, explanation, can be adaptive in a, in a strange kind of way. Similarly, we spoke about um, anti-Semitism as understood through an evolutionary lens and, uh, and about honor cultures and victim cultures and why the two kinds of culture cannot understand one another uh, that was all in the extended part of the episode which can be found at louiseperry.substack.com where you can also find as always uh, the bonus episodes I do fortnightly with my husband and the MMM chat community and the whole back catalogue of extended episodes enjoy So, Gad, I think you know that the theme of this podcast is um, is sexual politics um, and uh, gender differences in psychology. Something you've written about a lot in your in your newest book about um, happiness. Do did you conclude from writing it that happiness and the route to happiness might look different for men and women? I mean, I didn't specifically look at sex differences uh, in terms of the the pursuit of happiness, but I can. Imagine that on many dimensions of happiness, uh, men and women will exhibit no differences. On, on others, they will perfectly in line with my scientific work in evolutionary psychology. So, uh, so for example, we know that uh, take the extreme opposite end of happiness, committing suicide. We know that there are uh, evolutionary-based sex differences and triggers of suicide that are fully explained from an evolutionary perspective. So men, for example, are much more likely to commit suicide if they have a you know, devastating attack on their social status, right? They, they lose their job, they're found out to be frauds, they completely lose their uh, you know, place in the social hierarchy. So that's going to be a, a much greater predictor of men committing suicide than women. And of course, there are other uh, female-specific triggers of suicide. So in the abstract, I do expect that there might be some sex-specific differences in happiness, but I certainly didn't look at that uh, carefully in this book. The suicide point is a very interesting one because it's often a, a sort of a grenade um, lobbed on both sides of the gender wars. You know, women attempt suicide more often, men actually commit suicide more often, et cetera, et cetera. Would you agree that it seems as if both sexes are have different methods of suicide are drawn to suicide for different reasons that like it's actually quite a sex specific question indeed so i i published a paper i think it was in 2007 in a medical journal called uh, medical hypotheses where i looked at the global sex specific uh, the global ratio of suicide and it turns out that around the world it's three to one quote, in favor of men, meaning on average, around the world, men commit successfully suicide uh, on a scale of three to one to women. But you are right that women are more likely to attempt it. One argument has been that it's because in women's case, it's often a, a cry for help. Whereas when men, uh, you know, choose that option, they're very serious and assiduous in making sure that they're successful in that pursuit. But in the, in the paper in question, to, to my earlier point, what I wanted to look at is whether that ratio is either exacerbated or lessened depending on certain evolutionarily relevant ecological variables. So in my case, what I wanted to see very much to my earlier point is do, does, do economic conditions in different nations worsen that ratio or make it less so? So what I did is I took secondary data from uh, the world uh I think it was the World Bank uh, and the uh, the World WHO World Health Organization. So they have data on the male to female ratio of suicide, the the World Health Organization, and the other guys have data on 
average GDP and other economic indicators. And I showed that as economic conditions worsen in a country, th that ratio is exacerbated. In other words, it becomes more pronounced. It's, it's higher than three to one. As economic conditions improve, it's still men more than women, but then it becomes a bit more, quote, even. And so, again, the evolutionary lens offers us a, a wonderful explanatory framework for studying something, even as, you know, non-adaptive as to end your life. Oh, well, I mean, that's kind of an open question, though, isn't it? Is it possible that suicide could be adaptive in some circumstances? I mean, certainly if we're thinking of the cry for help style of suicide you mentioned already. The most, uh, if, if you like, ubiquitous explanation for a Darwinian analysis of suicide is based on, you know, kin selection theory, which basically says that we've often evolved altruism be precisely because, you know, if, if I jump into a river and save three of my children, if it were at the organism level that evolution operates, then there'd never be a reason for me to ever risk dying in the service of sa saving three of my children. But if my three children on average share 50% of their genes with me, even if, if I end up dying in the service of saving them, then it would make perfect evolutionary sense that such kin-based altruism would have evolved. And so taking that argument to the extreme, one argument, although it's somewhat speculative. So this this argument could be one of those uh, arguments that falls prey to the, it seems a bit of just so storytelling. Whereas other arguments, I can state state them with unequivocal swagger that they have been completely validated. But in this case, uh, the argument is that, uh, let's suppose we are in the evolutionary past and I am a bane to the rest of the uh, group that I'm in, think about Robin Dunbar's number, we're 150 people, and I'm constantly falling behind because I'm old and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ill, and I'm increasing the chances that this might bring attention to the... Tr so I might give myself up to get, to allow whomever is following us and wants a piece at us as a ultimate means of sacrifice. So that's usually the Darwinian-based argument for suicide. But to your point about signaling, depression mm. has been argued as having that adaptive purpose. It, it allows me to uh, signal to the world my cur current helplessness state, and then it allows me to kind of lick my wounds. There's actually a great book uh, called Darwinian Psychiatry by Troisi and McGuire that looks at a wide range of uh, mental disorders from an evolutionary lens. And it may or may not surprise your, your viewers and listeners to know that very few uh, therapists actually utilize the evolutionary lens, which seems quite extraordinary that you would never explore why the mind has evolved to be the way that it is to, in order to study why at times it can go awry. And how indeed one can like rectify problems and distress. That the example I think of often is um, postnatal depression, which is often explained biochemically that it's some there's some kind of hormonal like problem that occurs um, after birth or something. I think a much more plausible explanation is it's caused by signals from the environment suggesting that a woman is like has been abandoned if she's very lonely, if she doesn't have social support, the signal saying like your baby is not going to survive these conditions. And did you, sorry, did you say that in the context is, of anorexia? Is that what you're saying? No, sorry, postnatal depression. Oh, I see. Okay. Because what you said also exactly applies for an evolutionary explanation to eating disorders. Uh, go on. So the argument there is I actually discuss uh, this phenomenon as part of a broader range of phenomena which I call dark side consumption. So pathological gambling, pornographic uh, addiction, eating disorders, compulsive buying, excessive suntanning. So things that are maladaptive in the consumatory realm. And so when it comes to eating disorders, the evolutionary argument is that it is a manifestation of what's called the uh, reproductive suppression model. The reproductive suppression model is the mechanism found in many female uh, members of a wide range of mammalian species that basically argues that if the environment is not conducive to uh, the female in that species carrying successfully a child, you know, 
to birth and then on, onwards beyond that, then it makes evolutionary sense for the mechanism to be suppressed, the reproductive mechanism. So in the context of, say, some species that go through uh, estrus, you know, they, they have heat cycles where it's only within those windows that they're sexually receptive, then that mechanism is shut off. The, the female doesn't go into uh, her uh, estrus uh, period. On the other hand, if she's if the female is already with the offspring, then there is a hormonal mechanism that results in a miscarriage. Now, when pushed to the extreme, you can then argue that even infanticide, so postnatally, uh, infanticide, which has been practiced in many cultures, there are evolutionary, exact evolutionary predictors predictors that might help us understand under which conditions that happens, which by the way leads up, and I'll link it in a second to anorexia. But that, by the way, is one of the key reasons why many people wrongly abhor evolutionary explanations of human behavior, because they think that if you explain a reprehensible phenomenon, that means you are justifying it, you are condoning it, you are offering some scientific veneer for this dreadful, which of course is is just profoundly imbecilic. This is like arguing that an oncologist who studies cancer is for cancer, is justifying cancer. No, you're trying to explain why it arises. Now, the way that you link it to eating disorders in exactly the same way that you had given your explanation is that in the case of, say, a cow, an actual literal cow, her environmental threat might be if there isn't enough grazable land, then I, I should shut off my reproductive potential. Well, what is that environmental threat in, in, a, in a human female's case? It could be lack of mate support. It could be lack of extended parental support, kin support in raising a child. And that might be a truly objective reality or it's a subjective and incorrect perception. But if the mm -hmm. female feels that it's not currently conducive for, have to, for her to have a child, then an anorexia becomes a means by which you instantiate the reproductive suppression model. Because when you have anorexia, the first thing that happens once you go below a certain fat level is it shuts off your menstrual cycle, you get what's called amenorrhea. And so it's exactly that. And, you know, oftentimes when I lecture about these, these kinds of things, I'll get psychiatrists to come up to me and say, oh my God, what, a, what an elegant explanation. I went, you know, I'm a psychiatrist and I never studied that. And that's because there is a very important distinction in evolutionary theory between what are called proximate mechanisms and ultimate mechanisms. Much of science operates at the proximate level. It explains the how and what of a phenomenon. So your hormonal explanation, while perfectly correct, perhaps, is only explaining the mechanistics of that phenomenon. The ultimate explanation is the Darwinian why. Why would the mechanism have evolved to be of that form? So you have a situation where uh, women who are who are actually living in conditions of abundance and have supermarkets and, and warm homes and all of this, but are, let's say, acutely lonely feel as if they don't have kin support necessary to raise a child that those emotional that that emotional response could lead to both anorexia suppressing fertility and postpartum depression which in the ancestral environment is often a prelude to infanticide exactly right is, i'd is, never is, thought is that evolutionary link. psychology beautiful? yeah <laughs> beautiful is one word for it yeah <laughs> so, so. i suppose uh, depression is also so often associated with low libido so that would also be another exactly means of yeah. Okay. And I'll give you another example. If if since we're just you know one of the nice things about having these conversations, you don't know where the conversation is going to go. So since we're on this kind of evolutionary psychopathology uh, tangent, uh, I, I wrote I published in two other papers uh, also in, in medical journals, and I only point out that they're medical journals because you know I'm housed in a business school. But that shows you the power of evolutionary theorizing. Once you have that explanatory key to understand and unlock human behavior, you can contribute in many, many disciplines, even though I'm not trained as a clinical psychologist or as a psychiatrist, yet I can contribute to the, you know, the, the, the fundamental literature precisely because I'm come equipped with this powerful mechanism. So two other papers that I've written in medical journals linking specific psychiatric disorders with evolutionary theory. One is uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy. This is the idea that, so Munchausen syndrome would be, uh, I feign illness 
in order to garner empathy and sympathy to myself. But I feign it. Uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy is someone who's under my care, my pet, my elderly parent, but most typically my biological child, is I will try to garner that sympathy and empathy by proxy, by harming them in some ways, right? So I, I inject my child with insulin shots, even though they don't have diabetes. And then boo-hoo-hoo, look at you. I have, a, I have a child that's very sickly. And usually it's biological mothers that are the sufferers of Munchausen syndrome by proxy. But to our more general discussion today about some of these adaptive mechanisms of psychopathologies or the maladaptive manifestation of these behaviors, uh, I, I published a paper on sex-specific manifestations of OCD. So obsessive compulsive disorder itself could be construed as a maladaptive firing of an otherwise adaptive process. The adaptive process is it's perfectly the reasonable and rational for humans to have evolved the mechanisms to scan the environment for environmental threats. So when I wash my hands assiduously because I'm afraid that I might have contaminated germs, or if I check that the back door is locked a few times, or I check that the oven is closed, that makes perfect sense. Now, for most people, when the warning flag is, is raised and you address the threat, then the flag goes down and we move on. What happens in an OCD sufferer is that the flag, as right after I've addressed it, it goes up again. And so now I'm caught in an infinite loop of rituals and compulsions that become dysfunctional. So I, I clean my hands for the next eight hours and my skin is falling off because I'm using scalding hot water and I can't make it to my job because I'm cleaning my hands, right? And so what I argue in that paper is that there are many manifestations of OCD that occur in equal numbers in men and women. But to our earlier conversation, some manifestations of OCD are much more likely to afflict men and others, women, precisely for evolutionary reasons. So example, there is one form of OCD called ruminative thinking, where instead of trying to wash your hands of germ, literal germs on your hand, there's an intrusive thought that enters your brain that you constantly loop over. Oh my God, did I say something stupid at yesterday's party? And now everybody in my social media thinks I'm the biggest idiot. And now I'm, I'm obsessed with this thought. Now I start going around to everybody at the party to try to make sure that, is, is it true that, that I say something like that? Well, Men are much more likely to suffer from one type of specific ruminative thinking, which is tied to that I say something that would have made me lose social status. There mm -hmm. are other types of OCD manifestations that are much more likely to afflict women exactly, again, because of very clear evolutionary reasons. Like my constant fear about some kind of accident befalling my toddler, right? I bet that's Certainly. But interestingly, also... There is a ruminative thought, what if I take a knife and plunge it in my child? And that becomes this kind of repulsive germ-like thought, like a re repulsive thought. How, how could I be thinking that? If I remember correctly, that tends to uh, be a ruminative thought that happens more so to, to women. I have spoken to a lot of mothers who talk more so in the early newborn days. And this, I, I mean, this might be linked to what we talked about in terms of sort of psychological priming for infanticide, um, that women will, will have like the terrible moment. Of, I could just throw my baby off the balcony. I could just like that, that all of those fears are very, very common in the newborn days. I was actually told by, um, uh, Sarah Dyson, um, another, another podcast guest, although she told me this just before, um, I had my baby, um, you will, you will behave in ways as a new mother that in any other circumstance would have you diagnosed with OCD, but actually it's normal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like obsessively checking the baby's breathing. Yes. I don't yes. think I know of a mother who doesn't do that. Exactly. And you slowly fade out of doing it. And like, it's, it is quite, and it's exactly that thing you talk about that the flag goes up and you know, you, you, you can kind of tolerate a certain amount of time between checks and then the pressure builds up and you're like, I just got to check. I just, I'll feel better if I just check. Um, and it, it's not very nice, but it is, you can see why it would be adaptive. Yeah. And, and, and to the extent that that worry is more likely to afflict women than men. Now, officially, of course, we are a biparental species in that men, human males are truly super dads. So compared to other mammalian dads or other dads across animal taxa, we really do invest uh, incredibly in our children 
precisely because it requires, you know, humans have a long period of juvenility that requires both parents to invest until those children enter the sexual maturation phase. But it is also incontestable that when it comes to parental investment theory, women do invest way more than men. If only, if you look at the gametes, you know, 400 fertilizable eggs for women from the onset of menarche to menopause, whereas, you know, men can have 250 million spermatozoa in a single ejaculation. And that's just one metric. There are countless others. And so it would make, again, perfect evolutionary sense that while both men and women may experience excessive worrying about whether my baby is breathing, to the extent that women are much more likely to experience it, that's because there is no such thing as maternity uncertainty, but there is such a thing as paternity uncertainty. So just by definition, I'm not going to be as biologically wedded to my child as would the the mother of the child. Do you think also that higher levels of neuroticism on average in women explain at least some of this? I'm right, aren't I, that in terms of big five, women are quite substantially more neurotic than men are? So here we have to be, uh, you mean, you're just asking if it's confirmed that there is that sex difference or whether we could explain it via an evolutionary lens? Well, both. Well, uh, I think, I I don't want to misspeak, so I I think you're right about the fact that the sex difference tilts towards women being more, uh, scoring higher on neuroticism than men. And if I'm wrong, someone I'm sure will correct me in the comment section, but I think you're right. I'm not sure what would be uh, off the top of my head an evolutionary explanation. This is where we have to be careful of not falling prey to what's referred to uh, in the in the at least in the academic literature as uh, you know kind of ultra adaptationism, right? So, for example, the reason why I may prefer bowling and you may prefer fishing, there may actually more likely than not, there isn't an evolutionary reason for that difference. The, the unique combination of genes that makes up GAD and that's different from whatever makes up Louise is such that I like bowling for whatever reason, and there is no adaptive function. So, so, and that's by the way one of the the, the really tricky parts when you're uh, an evolution psychologist by profession that you always have to have the epistemological discipline to exactly know when to invoke an adaptationist argument and when it may not be within the purview of an evolutionary analysis. Having said that, <laughs> women are women do seem to be more neurotic than men. And it's the sort of thing that I think you can see more at the tails. Did you notice during COVID, I noticed during COVID, that you remember that some people, at least in London, would like jump off the pavement because they didn't want to get close to other people even while wearing a mask even while outside whatever that there was a period they no one does this anymore but there was a period where we had what me and my husband called pavement jumpers like people who would just like leap into the middle of the road and risk a traffic accident rather than pass within two meters of someone and I could not help but notice that it was like 95 percent women who did that is that right that's interesting I wonder if anybody has studied so the kind of, I, I hate to use those, some of those obnoxious kind of woke terms, but the, the Karen-like behavior when it comes to COVID, you're arguing, did have a very pronounced sex specificity. Not so much in terms of Karen-like would su- suggest being some kind of belligerent about it. It was more being personally afraid, I think. I see. So I wonder if that's also here. We're just brainstorming, so I'm we're speculating. So I'm, you know, I'm not sure that whatever I'm saying is vertical. But uh, it's also fun to do that sometimes. Uh, I wonder if to the extent, so there is a premium on men exhibiting risk-taking behavior, right? So, right, I mean, one of the reasons why we always see James Bond and every single James Bond since the 60s, there's always a casino scene where he's playing for very, very high stakes. And yet he is so calm, cool, and collected, it's because he can face these great risks and never be uh, triggered by them, never be bothered by them. And that's a, sort of a very manly desire trait. I faced death, I faced, I faced financial ru- ruin, I faced physical harm, and I came out unscathed and cool like James Bond. So I wonder if th- the fact that men would not exhibit that same level of neuroticism stems in part from that, which is it's, you know, Louise is passing by. She's an attractive woman. I'd like her to think that I'm an attractive guy. And if I start acting all neurotic about it, 
there go my chances with Louise. And so then therefore, therefore let me look like I'm totally cool and collected. But well, what do you think of this argument? <laughs> I, yeah, I hadn't considered the fact that I think I'm sure that my husband mentioned having this experience on his own as well. But then, I mean, you are still potentially right that men don't want to look like wusses. Exactly. Regardless of who the audience is. Right. In Montreal, you'll often see in the dead of winter, young men in sort of downtown Montreal, where there are a lot of bars and clubs, it's minus 25 and they're walking around without a shirt. I seldom mm. see, uh, not without a shirt, without a coat, I meant. And I seldom see women doing that. Although typically it's women who are scantily clad and not men. But in this case, the signal that I'm sending is, I mean, I must be a pretty well put together guy that I can face minus 20 and not care about it and just be out in a t-shirt. One exception to that rule is there is a stereotype in um, the north of England of working class women going out scantily clad in the evening without coats. Um, but I don't think that's because they're trying to boast about their hardiness. I think it's just because they can't be bothered to bring a coat into the club. <laughs> like, so this is Newcastle? Is it, is it Newcastle? <laughs> that kind of region, yes. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, well, I learned something new today. Yeah, but the point stands, yeah, that men are, are, are less likely to, uh, yes, want to look wimpy. I, I mean, it's also possible, though, right, that if women are, if there's an overlapping bell curve of neuroticism, you would expect the very high-end tale to be majority female. So you would expect to see, of, of highly neurotic behavior in public, you would expect it normally to be women manifesting it, right? Right. And I mean, I, I think there's a similar phenomenon, since you mentioned bell curves, with math abilities, right? You, you've got the, the, the guys, who, the, the people who are on the super extreme of the right end of the tail tend to be uh, male and also on the, and so, so I think you probably find that sex specific distribution for, for many traits. And it, I mean, and it is a very helpful explanatory framework for understanding, you know, why are there disproportionately men at working at Google? for instance, the exactly. James, James Damore memo. Yeah. You know, and I don't know if you probably don't know this, but when the James Damore thing happened, it, it, it turned out to be a coincidence, but it was at exactly the time. So about a, a week or two, I don't remember the exact timeline, but you know, within a very short time before the James Damore memo broke out and he got into quote trouble, I had gone to Mountain View to the main campus to deliver a, Google Talks, which had surprised many people because they thought, oh, they would never invite you. I mean, it's like a super woke place and you're coming with all your evolutionary psychology stuff. That's surprising. And it, it had gone really well. But of course, I was talking about all my research, sex differences, evolutionary-based sex differences. And then within a week or two, that James Damore thing happened. And so I, very, uh, I was very presumptuous in thinking that, oh, I wonder if... James Damore got into trouble because he came to my talk and then, and so I had reached out to him and he goes, well, no, actually I had, I was hoping to go to your talk, but I was out of town and I, I did it independently, which kind of at least assuaged my sense of guilt that I could have caused it. And then he ended up coming on my show. And so, so there's definitely a personal link between the James Damore story and uh, my visit to, to Google many years ago. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a very good example of, of, uh, very clever people not being well either not being good at or not wanting to understand this this fact about overlapping bell curves that you can have quite minor differences between groups but at the tails they'll become very obvious james damore obviously sensitive to this fact but so many of his critics who handed him out of his job just couldn't wrap their heads around it or didn't want to wrap their heads around it there's even an, a, a more blatant form of statistical fallacy when it comes to evolutionary psychology. So whenever I lecture, whether in a professional setting, meaning to, to, to other academics or in my classes about some evolutionary phenomenon that holds true at the population level, someone will invariably raise their hand and say, oh, but Professor Saad, my aunt Nina is taller than my uncle Joe. And therefore that falsifies <laughs> when you say that 
there is a sexual dimorphism between men and women such that men are called the women. Oh no, Darwin is dead, back to the drawing board. And so for every single phenomenon that I mention, someone can say, oh no, but Professor Aunt Lena and Uncle Roscoe, and then I have to explain to them that a singular datum doesn't falsify a statement that holds true at the population level, or to use the the right the this, the mean of the two distributions is such that men are taller than women, even though there's an overlap in the distributions. And for most people, oftentimes, including professional academics, they will make that kind of uh, 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 erroneous thinking. Precisely because I think they're predisposed to somehow be triggered and hate evolutionary theorizing. I think they're also trying to compensate for their own tendency to stereotype. Um, because actually, the human mind is really, really good at spotting patterns, like me spotting my uh, pavement jumper <laughs> as being, right. being female pattern, right? Like, we're so good at that. And it's, it's, it's a completely natural instinct. And stereotypes actually tend to be surprisingly accurate. I say surprisingly only because um, whatever progressive work ideology doesn't like stereotypes. That doesn't mean that they're not true with exceptions. And it doesn't mean that we're not really, really good at spotting them. Exactly. Yeah, well said. Including, of course, when it comes to men and women. Um, a point that I I always find it hard to explain this, this uh, elegantly but a point that was made to be by um, Diana Fleischman, who I'm sure you know, sure, is that even if there are certain, if you're thinking about masculine and feminine personalities, right, by which I mean sort of stereotypically male, stereotypically female personalities, even though on any given trait, say neuroticism, you have overlapping bell curves and you're going to expect to see lots of outliers in both directions, across all of the suite of personality traits that make up a person, you will probably be gender conforming for more of them than not in the same way that for a person's face, you will probably, you might have a big nose for a woman, you know, men on Hamish have bigger noses, yada, yada. You might have an unusually big nose for a woman, but probably the rest of your face is going to be more female typical, which means that someone can look at your face and immediately know that you're female in the same way that actually you can look at a person's personality and clock their sex generally because we are so good at stereotyping what men and women tend to be like well and, and take it to the extreme never mind whether you can tell whether somebody is male or female based on certain clear cues until 15 minutes ago the 117 billion people who had ever lived on earth seemed to know quite well what the definition of the male and female phenotype is but we've now learned from progressive anatomy and progressive uh you know gynecology that that's completely antiquated. I've had conversations, I mean, or exchanges, uh, not in person, but through Twitter and so on, with gynecologists who were chastising me for fighting against the argument that, you know, of course men too can menstruate. And hence, that's why I wrote, I mean, I'm not trying to segue into one of my books just for self-promotion, but that's why I wrote The Parasitic Mind, right? Because, you know, I had, you know, this is my 30th year as a professor. So I've now been a professor long enough to have seen the, you know, the, the frontal attack on reasons, science, common sense, logic, reality in, in many disciplines. It, of course, it first started in the humanities and in some of the social sciences. But as I kept warning people, it's coming for you in chemistry. It's coming for you in physics. Don't, don't think you're immune. It's coming for you in medicine. And it has. Precisely. And now there is nothing unique about the fact that the human mind can be parasitized, right? I can go back in history and demonstrate countless manifestations and exemplars of parasitic thinking. What is unique to the current period is the specific, what I call idea pathogens that have proliferated. So it's like saying, yes, viruses have always existed and we've always been uh, prone to fall ill from viruses. But COVID was a new virus that we had to deal with. So that's that's what's unique about these parasitic ideas that we today deal with. It's this cocktail of, you know, dreadful idea pathogens, all of which were spawned on university campus. They start off in some esoteric department in the humanities or social sciences, but just like the COVID virus, it 
breaks free from the lab, eventually it becomes, you know, in every nook and cranny of society. And eventually it also becomes the Prime Minister of Canada. <laughs> yeah, well, particularly the Prime Minister of Canada. Although unlike a virus, um, is this type of parasite necessarily harmful to its host? I mean, I'm thinking maybe Trudeau is a good example of someone who actually has been able to advance himself socially, professionally by espousing these right. ideas. Right. So it depends at what level of analysis we, we conduct that analysis, right? So while him being an extremely parasitized individual led to him becoming prime minister, and so your point is well taken, if we argue that the the host is Canada, well, then it may not be a great thing, right? So then in that case, you know, my deciding that I will no longer apply for scientific grants because I simply can't engage in the absurd and inauthentic process of spending half the time that I'm writing the grant on diversity and inclusion equity statements. No one wins. Now, I don't mean that in, oh God, the world is going to implode if they don't have Gatsad research, but Gatsad is an exemplar of any other academic who actually has a spine, who has testicular fortitude, who, who has a an epistemological backbone that says, I'm not playing those games. And so how can I write a book where I rail against diversity, inclusion, and equity, but then when it comes to advancing my own career because I need the next grant to do my research, I just play along. And many academics have written to me because they're feeling guilty, as if I'm sort of the grand confessor. They want to receive my... <laughs> It's okay, son, go out and be an, an authentic charlatan. They write to me and say, but, but you know, I, I'm applying for tenure, so what do I do, Dr. Sat? And then I tell them, look, it's, it's, every person has to weigh that, that calculus in their own idiosyncratic ways. For me, you know, I can't be preaching authenticity, existential authenticity, and then violate it. You know, so I'm, from this side of my mouth, truth and freedom is all that matters. From this side of my mouth, when nobody's looking, I start scamming. So for me, the calculus is clear. I don't play along. And so, yes, Trudeau won in that he's been prime minister for eight years, but boy, has Canada lost. I think we are in complete agreement about the macro effect that these ideas have in terms of destroying institutions, destroying um, civilization. Also, I don't think that's too overblown <laughs> to no, say that. I think you're right on. I, I wonder actually if, if you you have become more pessimistic since writing the book in terms of global events since i'm thinking particularly yes. the last um the last month or so yeah thank you for that question and actually i'm specifically ready to answer that question because i've, I've had to address it recently uh, you may or may not have seen about i don't know what it was about two three weeks ago i put out a, a tweet that went absolutely viral I, I don't know how many maybe 11 12 million you know views it was everywhere all around the world where the the valence of that tweet was exactly somber and pessimistic and dark. And what kind of took people back is that, you know, I'm, I'm known uh, as the happy warrior, right? I mean, I, I wrote a book on happiness. I, I'm always playing around. I'm always being sarcastic and funny and I can be self-deprecating and joke around. I can be full grandiose and so on. And so here's this guy who's, you know, who, whose whole personality is based on, you know, being playful and so on. And yet this was very dark and it was very dark, not because I was trying to be strategic and, you know, having the tweet go viral is because now, of course, what had triggered it is the post October 7th reality where I saw that, you know, it, it's one thing if you have these parasitic ideas, these dreadful ideas spreading, it's another thing to see that not only is the West doubling down on many of these ideas, there seems to be a complete reticence to actually, you know, correct course, right? And so, you know, when, when, when October 7th happened, one of three things can happen when it comes to the, the level of Jew hatred, the level of global Jew hatred. I mean, there's only three possibilities. Global Jew hatred can go up, global Jew hatred can stay the same, or global Jew hatred can decrease. Well, if 12 to 1400 people were decapitated, raped, put in an oven, gang raped, whatever, we can decide what happened, it doesn't matter. 
if if the outcome of that grotesque reality is that this has led to an orgiastic increase in global Jew hatred, it's very, very difficult to then be optimistic about things. And it shows that, you know, humans are a, a species that is a story a storytelling species, narratives matter. And when it comes to at least this particular narrative, it doesn't matter if Jews are the victims, they're viewed as the oppressor, doesn't matter, right? Even, I mean, even when the Holocaust happens, it turns out that they were using strategically the erasure of 6 million people to benefit them down the line. So even when they are exterminated, it's because they are really the oppressors. They are the ones who are benefiting from this. And so when I saw that, I said, look, uh, this, this doesn't look good because if, if you go see your physician and your physician, God forbid, or Darwin forbid, says, uh, hey, you have stage four cancer and these are steps A, B, C, and D that we have to take. And my answer is, well, first of all, there is no such thing as cancer. So I don't believe in cancer. Second of all, if there is cancer, it's the Jews who did it. And also if there's a cure for cancers, it's probably the Jews who are withholding the cancer treatment because that's how they increase the prices because they are the heads of the pharmaceutical companies. But in any case, to prove to you that there is no such thing as cancer, I'm going to smoke four packs a day and I'm going to inhale with, you know, with deep inhalation from this asbestos uh, bag. Well, then it looks like your time is up. Uh, and so that's, so to your, to answer your question in a long-winded way, I, I have become exponentially more pessimistic. Now, that doesn't mean that the West will fall tomorrow, but it does mean that in 20, 30, 50 years, we will be astoundingly worse off than we are today un unless there is a cataclysmic change, not little changes, not the eradication of diversity, inclusion, and equity committees. I mean, that's nice, but that's Band-Aid little stuff. That's, that's you fixing your dandruff when your hair is on fire. It, it requires a much bigger intervention, one of which might be, hey, it might be a good idea to revisit open border policies for countries. I, I agree with you. And I, and I also have seen the same exponential rise in alarm and pessimism among otherwise more, more sort of... I don't want to say more happy-go-lucky commentators, as you say, <laughs> since October 7th, and I think appropriately so. I mean, thinking again about um, your point about anti-Semitism actually, well, one, anti-Semitism actually seeming to increase um, post-October 7th, and two, its remarkable consistency across time, putting your evolutionary psychology hat on again, what do you think might explain why anti-Semitism is such a common phenomenon and well, not just a, in the Muslim world, that's right? That's a fantastic question, although, but a complicated although one. Although particularly in, yeah, well, I mean, this is it. Let's go for it. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know. Right. So, so th th there are different sources. So one thing that's been quite uh, arresting since October 7th is the extent to which I've received Jew hatred, I mean, orgiastic Jew hatred from completely different angles and different sources. So you got your standard, you know, Ahmed Muhammad writing to me and saying, you know, Jew this, Jew that. That's the Islamic sources. Okay, fine. I'm, I'm used to that. I, I'm from the Middle East. Got it. Then you get your leftist progressives, the, the, you know, the students and professors in Near East Studies at Columbia and my alma mater, Cornell, uh, who have been taught all this stuff about, you know, Jews are the oppressors, Palestinians are the noble victims, and therefore we hate the Jews because they're the oppressors. There's that angle. And then there's, of course, the Jews will not replace, replace us kind of neo-Nazi white, quote, white nationalist types. And I've gotten it from all of them. And so the source, the, the genesis of understanding your question will vary depending on the source of Jew hatred. So it varies. In the case of the Islamic uh, context, well, just read the Quran, read the Hadith, and read the Sirah, the, the, the biography of Muhammad, and do a content analysis, do an exegesis on, on that, you know, do a hermeneutic analysis on it, and then decide whether it says love the Jew or whether it says some really... Now, one of the reasons, by the way, why I'm a nightmare for a lot of these uh, folks is because 
they can go to Louise Perry and say, yeah, but Louise Perry, she's British. She, you know, she doesn't know Arabic. She doesn't, right? It's a lot harder to go after Gatsad, mother tongue Arabic and say that bullshit, right? So therefore, I become a much more difficult problem to deal with because I come from that culture. I speak the language. I've been exposed to that. I had to leave the Middle East because of that. So you can't pull the same delegitimization uh, tactics that you would on Louis Perry that, uh, that you might on me. Maybe Douglas Murray can fall prey to it, but not me. So that's one. Uh, when it comes to uh, more globally, why there is an orgiastic hatred of... So here... It may, I mean, it, it may be couched in an evolutionary angle uh, or not. So we, we could either look at it from a proximate or ultimate perspective. So we know there is something called uh, the self-serving bias in psychology, right? So when, when I did well on the exam, well, that's because I'm really smart and I studied hard. When I did poorly on the exam, well, that's because Professor Saad is an asshole and he's unfair. So therefore, I attribute failures externally and I attribute successes internally. And it turns out that that attributional style is very, very common to all people, except, by the way, clinically depressed people, which, which leads to a chicken-egg question, which is, is it that because they have a more realistic attribution style that it predisposes them to becoming depressed, or is it that their depression causes them to be you know, more uh, accurate in their attribution style? And the research shows that, like many things, it's a bit of both, but okay. Now, why am I linking that to Jew hatred? Well, imagine if I now have a cause for all failures. Oh, my wife cheated on me. Well, obviously the Jew is to blame. Why? Because the Jews are the ones who peddle pornography. And I think my wife must have been exposed to some sort of erotic novel or that. Who caused her to then go with the really sexy neighbor uh, on this uh, little dalliance? It's the Jew. Now, this one, I just, I, I made it up hyperbolically, although it, it literally is at that level of conspiratorial thinking. But here's a literal one. I was sharing with someone on Twitter the identity of the rapists, you know, the, the grooming rapists across all of Britain. I mean, you certainly would know it. All over, up and down England, in many, many different cities, at industrial scale level, right, of young white British girls, right? Let me just kind of summarize their names. You ready? Ahmed Muhammad, Muhammad Ahmed, Ahmed Muhammad Ahmed, Ahmed Hussein Muhammad, Muhammad Ahmed Hussein Gbir. So I put all those, I said, you know, I'm, I don't have enough progressive highfalutin, you know, sophistication to see what is the, the commonality across all these rapists. Could somebody maybe help me out here? And many, many people wrote back to me and you know who was to blame for those rapes, Louise? Was it Jews, Gab? And do you know why? <laughs> no. <laughs> why? Because it is the Jews that are the architects of the open door philosophy. So, Oh, I see. So, so that was coming from the right wing group. So Ahmad raped your daughter, but Mordechai is to blame. It's very difficult to not be pessimistic about... Uh, you know, the world when that happens, right? Because you would think evolutionarily speaking, I've evolved the emotional system to have my ire triggered at the one who did me wrong. The guy who, Darwin forbid, rapes my daughter, I want to kill him, but it turns out he's not to blame. I need to be looking for Mordechai. He's the real problem. And so, so why am I saying all this? Because what you end up seeing is this universal mechanism by which you can always blame your failures at the individual level, at the societal level, always on the Jew. Now, we could talk about, well, why is it the Jew that's the existential explanation for all my failures? But I think that's a very alluring trap to fall into because most of us will have failures. It takes a lot more courage to blame those failures and, on me and a lot more psychologically satisfying to blame the Jew who is behind all possible maladies. Yeah, yeah, it's like a psychological tool that you have available to sort of mop up any excess anxiety that you might come across. And yeah, anti-Semitism is, I mean, 
and it is something that we see with some other um what's the expression that amy chua uses market market dominant minorities is oh that that's right like, yes like um oh, look look what yeah, i have like right here from chinese in oh well there we go i'm just finishing this <laughs> there book. we go like han chinese in vietnam and like there are other examples that she gives of um having minorities who are um either are like clearly economically successful locally or perform some sort of like uh economic role which puts them in an awkward like as money lenders like classically okay um so it's not it's not exclusively jews who've ended up and, and these market dominant minorities are incredibly vulnerable to to ethnic violence um it's not only Jews who end up in that category, but it is very, very often Jews who end up in that category. And clearly I, the, yeah, the violence directed against Jews is enormously, enormously higher than that directed against any of these other groups. And, and I was going to say that you're right in that while Amy Chua's analysis does apply to many different groups, and I think even Thomas Sowell has talked about it in some of his analyses, uh, there is something unique about the the, the, the Jewish reality for, for several reasons. So one, it might be that there are these infrastructural reasons, right? You know, Jews can't, you know, whatever, participate in these fields, they become money lenders or they, they can always hoard their knowledge because that's one of the things that they can do while they may not be able to own land or whatever the historical and social context. But I also think, so now we could talk about, this is one of the ones that's really corrosive to talk about. We can talk about genetic differences, right? You know, Jews score higher IQ and so on. But even if we exclude any possible, uh, you know, genetic element to the, the success of, of Jews, you know, about quarter quarter of all Nobel Prizes are to Jews, right? Uh, which is just astounding, right? Uh, given that there are 50 million Jews in the world, okay? Uh, just the, the ingrained cultural values of the Jews is like a superfood, right, of success. The episode is not over. There is another maybe 30 minutes of content, but it is behind a paywall. If you would like access to that content, if you would like to show support for the show, pay subscriptions are what keep it on the road. Allow me to pay my producers, put food on the table, all that important stuff. The extended version of the podcast is available at my Substack, louiseperry.substack.com. That's where you can also find, as I say every week, bonus episodes, extended episodes, uh, the MMM chat community, all of this. Um, please sign up for a pay subscription. It makes such an enormous difference to my ability to keep producing the podcast and grow it even bigger, produce more episodes, all that good stuff. There are other ways that you can show your support for the show as well. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can like us on YouTube. You can tell your friends and family uh, how much you like the show. If you find it valuable, all of these things make an enormous difference to our ability to keep making it. Thank you so much. <laughs>